Hey, my name is Andrew, and this is episode two of Alt Class. In this episode, we talk to Sam Farber, the head of business development and content at Golden Auctions. Now, Golden Auctions is a pretty interesting enterprise. It was founded by a legend, an OG collector named Ken Golden, who started collecting trading cards in 1978. Over the course of his career, Ken would go on to sell over $1 billion worth of trading cards, collectibles, and memorabilia. And today, the platform Golden.co is the leading marketplace for those things and more, serving millions of users around the world. In this conversation, Sam and I discuss how Golden Auctions is preparing for the future, the current landscape of collecting, and how the internet is transforming the whole of it. Hope you enjoyed the episode of All Class. More on the way. All right. Uh, so, welcome to Alt Class, Sam Farber. Appreciate you taking some time to join us. Thank, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for the conversation too. Actually, we were just uh, geeking out, sort of pre-recording here on uh, on hometown teams. And Sam, you're from Boston originally. That's it. Yes, sir. I'm from a small town south of Boston, but mm-hmm. we all just claim the city because it gets too confusing to explain exactly which boonie I'm from. So yeah. <laughs> we're Boston for the sake of this conversation. Good stuff. All right. Well, I'm, and, and I'm from Toronto. And so we, we usually find ourselves in the same division uh, in whatever the, the sport might be. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, you guys come out on top most years, but every now and again, we get a good stretch in there. The well, the Toronto teams, especially, you know, Blue Jays and Raptors have been pretty good. And I feel like, I mean, the Blue Jays have a pretty young amazing roster and i think are just right on the cusp and the raptors had to reboot a little bit but uh we actually played the uh the raptors last night it was that's right yeah we won but uh, i think they have some pieces yeah we're getting there slowly actually that's a pretty good segue so sam you've had a uh, like a pretty decorated career in that industry maybe you could just kind of talk us through uh, how you broke in and, and just sort of the stops along the way sure so i broke in um, by sheer blind luck, which I guess a lot of careers start that way. But um, I was at a a really small boutique um, pharma consulting and advertising firm right out of college. And a friend of mine from college, well, I don't know if he was actually a friend, he was was a, a, a friendly acquaintance, wasn't like a good friend, posted on Facebook, which remember in like 2010, you know, the, all the kids still, still used it. So, yeah. um, posted on Facebook, who wants a job at the NBA? And he, he didn't work there. He worked at Goldman Sachs. And, uh, I said, of course I do. What, what, what do I need to do? And, uh, he gave me an email address and a name and he said, this is my boss's friend. I don't know who this is. I don't know what the job is. I don't know if you're qualified. <laughs> but awesome. Feel free to reach out. Uh, so I did and oh, wow. yeah, so that's really how my career started. I reached out and got a call back and so on and so forth. So, um, I joined as a contract hire in 2010 with my last day expiring the same day that the CBA was due to expire. So the league was going to likely go into a lockout at that point. So I figured it was going to be just like a 10 month arrangement where it would just be a really, really amazing 10 months, a fun thing to do, a dream to just be able to step into that league office and I'd probably be on my way. Um, but one thing led to another, social media really started to emerge my, my, you know, that year I was there and because I was young and because that was one of the functional areas that was given to me, frankly, because I was young, 
by the time that the lockout came, I was one of two people who knew anything about social media. And they wisely realized that social media was going to be an important communication tool during the lockout. Um, so that was really how I, I stuck on full time. And so for my first five years I was there, I, I built their digital and social content team. I started sending tweets, sending posts myself, and then we built a team out and, and that was an awesome experience. And then for my last five years there, I oversaw um, digital licensing, um, digital strategy and partnerships. So essentially selling content, selling highlights, shows, all kinds of cool stuff to basically any company that isn't a linear network. So that's mm -hmm. what I did for the last five years I was there. So it was, it was, it was a blast. It was a fun, a really fun 10 and a half years. And that digital licensing piece, I'm sure is going through another boom right now unto itself. Is that kind of a fair characterization? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I think it's always been sort of just evolving and growing. I mean, it, there's always new, you know, there's always new distributors that, that have sort of entered the fray. I mean, of course, you have all of your, like, DSC offerings for the media companies. You have the OTT companies like Netflix. And, you know, you now have audio, so you have new mediums that have become incredibly popular. So, that like, one of the things I loved about it was that you were right on the edge of, of what was next, what was emerging. Yeah. And you got to see the future as it unfolded, which, which I found to be really, really fun. That is cool. That, that reminds me of that old expression, right? The future's here, just not evenly distributed. You, you probably, I would imagine in pro sports, right? You, you're, you're always on the cusp of that next thing. Um, that would be exciting. So, so yeah, the, the podcast, by the way, Sam, is uh, about alternative investing, which is a space that I think you can appreciate is blowing up right now. Uh, a lot of it's coming down market. It's being made more accessible to the average person, the retail investor and lots of lots of interesting new assets that, that, that people are taking a look at um, and you've since transitioned from the nba to a uh, kind of a big company in this space i would say that's been around for quite some time and actually has a bit of a storied founder uh, unto himself and so how did you how did you come to hear or learn about ken and and uh, what's it been like to work with him so far so i started collecting actively again I collected as a kid, like so many, so many people did, and for yeah. many years, um, I, you know, I sort of fell out of touch with with the hobby. And it was about 2018 that I got back into it while I was still at the NBA, and so I, I definitely just went right down the rabbit hole when I got back into it. So started buying up a ton of stuff. I, st I started participating in breaks. You know, I, I like, you know, was like sort of fully baptized in. The, this iteration of the hobby and you know I was sort of delighted to discover that it was very different in a good way than the hobby that I left as a kid mm. um, but you can't be in this space and not have heard of Ken I mean Ken is one of you know sort of the forefathers of this space um, and even more generally just in sort of memorabilia collecting and selling so I definitely I followed him on social media. I knew about the company. Golden obviously sells very expensive things, so for mm -hmm. me, a lot of the stuff that they sold was unattainable. So I hadn't actually bought anything before I, I joined. But I, I so I found out about Ken really through just through being in the hobby. 
Um, what brought me to Golden was because I had worked closely with Ross Hoffman, who's the, the current Golden CEO. Um, when Ross was at Twitter, Ross was very senior at Twitter, and I managed the relationship with Twitter. So that's, I met Ross a long time ago, and we bonded over uh, him being a Sixer fan, me being a Celtic fan, and that was like a, a banter that we continued for years. So mm-hmm. that was actually like the, the portal that like got me in the door. Yeah. Um, but Ken has been Ken has been awesome to work with. I mean, with Ken, it's like what you see is what you get. There's only there's only one Ken, you know. It's like, That's it. And so, yeah. So I mean, Ken Ken's legendary. Uh, Golden Auctions has been around for a long time. Feels like, actually, it feels like maybe the company has changed shape quite a bit in the last few years. I would say, you know, it's it's been a mainstay for a long time, but I. I if I'm not mistaken, the venture backing only arrived in the last, in the most recent chapter. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. And so that's a, that was a big decision. Were you a part of that or did you join on the heels of that? And, and how did Ken decide to kind of jump on the treadmill? I joined on the heels of it and it was actually a big reason why I joined. I joined right after the, the churning group made their investment. So um, they made their investment, um, you know, several months ago so it's really actually been in the last like year that this is this has all gone down but yeah exactly um, so yeah i I, uh, I joined right after the churning groups investment and then subsequently um we are now part of a holding company which uh, is owned by dan sometimes d1 by steve cohen by the churning group um nat turner um so it, it's you know the institutional money is certainly certainly here. I mean, I think for Ken, I, I can't speak for for Ken, so like actual reasons and, and what went through his head because I know for him it, it was probably a very you know very difficult decision in a lot of ways because it's a business that he built with his own two hands and now all of a sudden you're bringing in all these strangers to help you run it and mm-hmm. you know and, and that I'm sure I mean I, I can't. I can't speak from experience there, but I'm sure that's hard. You know, I'm sure it's, that's a really hard decision to make. But I think he saw what the future of this this hobby could be, and I think for him, if you want a company that's going to achieve maximum impact, that's going to grow, that's going to become an even larger player and play in a lot of different parts of this market, I think it's a you know in many ways it's a prerequisite it's a prerequisite to, to getting there is to to take in investment um and to potentially become part of of a larger entity and that's what we did and i think that i'm sure a lot of that was was to do or i'm sure a lot of those reasons were why he decided to take that investment to say hey i think we can be a lot bigger i think we can be a lot more impactful you know i think my reach you know as ken as as somebody who's in instrumental in the history of the hobby mm-hmm. I think my reach can be felt much you know further uh, in, in the entire industry if I'm part of a larger entity yeah and I'm, I'm curious how that translates because Golden has been known historically uh, for setting some some pretty big price records with regards to transactions um, yeah, and that's part of what what grew Ken's legend is just you know he's done that a few times now and, and I, I wonder um, what part of that carries into sort of this online world where you're now seeing sort of burgeoning competitors pop up? You know, help, help me break down what goes into uh, setting a new high. 
Yeah, I mean, look, we uh, competition breeds, you know, breeds value and breeds some of these big prices. So ultimately, I'm a I'm a competitive person, and I'm very pro competition. So I actually think in in all, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, the online world, I think, has only helped get these big prices that we we've and we've continued to get them. I mean, I think part of it is the fact that we have. You know, given Ken's incredible relationships and the relationships of our consignment directors, just you know, decades in this in this hobby, you have these amazing relationships with you know with the right group of customers who you know have the means to spend on collectibles, but who also are incredibly bullish on this category, like as a, as an investment vehicle for them, and so you have this this great audience and. Being online and having more accessibility to all these incredible, unique items is only going to allow more people to get involved in bidding. And ultimately, the competition is a huge element to the specific final sale price of particular lots. Right? It's if you get a bunch of people involved. Frankly, you just need two. But if you get a couple, two people or more that really want it, it really sounds、mm-hmm. really simple.、Um, That's where you're sort of on the path to hitting a really big number. Interesting. So yeah, color that audience in a bit more for me because I would imagine historically, these are fairly wealthy people historically, right? Who, you know, had some nostalgia or emotionality around a particular item, and just made it, you know, their mission to acquire it. And I can see how that would only require two people who felt the same way to to get there. Um, but now you know, are you seeing new participants in that audience? Is there、uh, is there sort of a changing demographic or some new some new inbound interest that's showing up? And how does that how does that either disrupt in a good way or bad way、uh, the economics of these investments? There's definitely new entrants. There's a lot more. You know, there's a lot of young folks who are coming in right now. I mean, there's a lot more. You know. Memorabilia and cards and, and collectibles at various price points. So there's more for everybody. But even if you're just thinking about the high end of the market,、yeah. we're definitely seeing、um, a lot of different demographics of folks come in. And oftentimes, it you know it varies by by product by sport, right? Where you have you know modern basketball appeals to a certain audience, right? It appeals to an audience that's more similar to. The you know NBA's fan base, which tends to be a little bit younger, it tends to look a certain way. Whereas you know if you look at something like vintage baseball or vintage baseball memorabilia, that might appeal to a different audience, maybe a slightly older audience. Now I'm a huge vintage baseball collector, and I'm you know in my early thirties, so I absolutely you know there's plenty of people who love it who are young, but I would say that you know different like different types of assets. Appeal to different folks. You know, we see like F one booming, and oftentimes, at least from my experience, we've seen like you know some of the the newer entrants or some of the younger folks have been more willing to take some risks and sort of like venture out into you know UFC cards and gold Conor McGregor cards and、yeah. you know and into Lewis Hamilton cards.、Um, You're also seeing a gigantic influx of international buyers. The soccer market has been on fire for months and months and months now, which makes a ton of sense because 
frankly, it's just correcting to probably where it should be, considering it's the most popular sport in the world. But that's also changing who's involved in this in this hobby. Is now all of a sudden, as it becomes more global, it's going to bring in a lot more people and a lot of different people. Yeah, and so talk to me about what feels from the outside or maybe the amateur perspective like a very emotional decision uh, to sort of go after a particular piece. And usually, when you think about an emotional decision with regards to investing, you're 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 sort of setting aside any good return profile. Right, you're, it's it's a nice to have, but not a need to have. Um, but maybe you could kind of unwind that assumption for me a little bit, or, or educate educate me and, and, and those listening on like what are the horizons that people hold these and uh, hold these assets, and sort of what are the expected returns, or, or they, are they not thinking about that? Everybody is very different, and I can get into that in more detail. But everyone's very different. It's really like anything, you know. You mm-hmm. have people that might invest in an index fund and hold on to it for years and years and years. And you might have somebody who's day trading like individual equities, right? Like you, you have people who are, who are doing all kinds of different things. Here you have people who are strictly investors who yeah. don't have a, as deep an emotional connection with it, who think it's objectively cool, but are in it mostly because they think, hey, this is an asset that I think will appreciate in value. And for those folks, they're looking at it a lot more, you know, analytically, and they're they're sort of divorced, uh, more divorced from from emotion, and they're making decisions based on market trends and based on where they think things are going. And you have folks who are only collectors who just love this stuff, and you know, they they have that nostalgia, and they just say, "Hey, I have all this expendable income, and." These are things that make me really happy and I just want to have them just the way I might, you know, be an art collector as opposed to an art mm-hmm. investor. I would be an art collector and I just like to see the painting on my wall. And then you have a bunch of folks in the middle, um, and I'd say probably most people are somewhere in the middle, where it's like it's this it's it's this idea of like passion investing, which I know sounds crazy and it sounds like you know, it, it sounds like it's something that's going to like produce a lot of bad decisions. And frankly, sometimes, you know, sometimes it does. Um, I think the way that, look, I can tell you how I think about it from my, yeah, my sure. own perspective is, is I have certain things that I buy that I intend to, to resell. And I, and I use a lot, I use very different calculus when I make those decisions. And sometimes those are players that I am a fan of. And sometimes those are players on teams that I'm not a fan of. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm just simply, or even in sports that I don't follow, I'm, I'm following trends and I'm looking at the opportunity. And I think the way to avoid making emotional investment decisions is yeah. if you love to collect, is to maintain a personal collection. Like, a, you know, they call it the right. PC in the hobby. And to sort of indulge yourself in those emotional purchases where you may just overpay for something that you just have to have. Yeah. And it's okay if the thing doesn't appreciate or it depreciates because it's like that's not why you bought it. Totally. Um, so that's it. Just it just depends on it. Just depends on the person. But I think for a lot of people, it's it's a blend because people are taking it very seriously and are looking at data. And there's a lot you know pricing tools and things like that are definitely in, like sort of an emerging uh, sort of cottage industry within this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. For a lot of people, even if they do intend to resell these things, I think they enjoy 
they enjoy the process of possessing it for however long they possess it. You know, whereas I don't, I'm not sure you feel the same way about like a like a standard stock. No, for sure. Well, yeah, for sure. I I, think I can see your point there. It's almost like the um, the the ones who are sort of emotionally driven to, to fill out the or fill out, fill up the PC are the exit strategy for those taking the analytical approach in a way. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, well, so from an analytical perspective, um, just to kind of double click on that for a second, I keep getting this analogy to scouting. I don't know if that's the way you approach these decisions, but when you're looking at players and you're thinking about what might appreciate, you know, I'm sure there's like a relative value equation there where you see something that a player that's underpriced relative to his peer set, his or her peer set rather. But I could also imagine that there's an aspect of scouting involved where, you know, you're betting on future performance of that individual. Is that, do I have that right? No doubt. I think one of the things I think is really, really unique and really awesome about collecting player cards, for example, mm -hmm. or player memorabilia, is that it's a way for you to act on your conviction about a player. And there just aren't, if you think about it, it's, it's an area where I think the collecting world actually like kind of overlaps like thematically with the gambling world, with the betting mm -hmm. world, where, you know, people who are, who are gambling on a game or replacing a wager on a game are acting on their conviction about a team or a, or a game or a season. Mm -hmm. it, what, like there are prop bets and there's like, you can bet on who's gonna be MVP, but it's really hard to say like, I'm long Luka Doncic. How do right. I like, act on that? Like that's a, that's a tough, like how do you act on that, right? It's like mm -hmm. maybe the best I can do is like put money down that he'll win MVP this season, but how do I tell, how do I act on my, my belief that he's gonna be a Hall of Famer? Or, or whatever mm -hmm. and I I think that's part of where collecting definitely plays in so I think for sure I mean I think for people for a lot of people it's like where you know where you think that player is going I think that's a huge piece of it I think there's a huge piece of, of it that is grounded in like the actual card itself of course like the, the population of, of that card and that grade the sort of the scarcity of the card as it is printed so if it's you know parallel with a with a fixed you know serial number so there's only yeah. x number of that card in existence um to begin with and there's also an element and this isn't like this is me speaking and, and i've just seen this to be the case there's like this other dimension and i would call it like collectability some huh. players like capture your imagination and make you like them more than others and it's funny because you see like in a lot of sports so for example i'll use basketball like on yeah. on balance guards are bet are more valuable than big men on huh. balance hitters and field position players are more valuable than pitchers they're always they're always counter examples but on balance that's how it is and it makes some sense you know it's yeah. like okay well the guards you know are they're the ones who are typically putting up the huge scoring numbers they're the ones who are handling the ball. They're the ones who are making the highlight plays. They're the like. It makes a ton of sense to me when you think about it that way. When you think about baseball, I mean, I grew up pitching, so I happen to love pitchers. But you know, the players are the ones who are making the crazy plays in the field, or hitting home runs, or stealing bases, rather than a pitcher who's pitching every every five games. So, like, there's like positional collectability, and then there's 
some guy has a crazy personality or plays on a on a really popular team and people just gravitate towards that that person um or they don't and and right. i think that's also a piece of it that, that it's just like a it's like an extra factor that you like sort of layer on top of of all like the actual like core yeah. sort of statistics that would determine what the market should be you mentioned you mentioned day trading uh, earlier and i was I was thinking about, oh, like, do these values move around that much? And I guess the example I came up with in my head as I was thinking about it was sort of, you know, injuries, right? So you've got, like, maybe not in the course of a day, but you've got a recent one, Michael Porter with his back again, or, you know, Shohei Otani, which just bounced back from, you know, an injury-riddled season or two. And so do you see, like, that kind of... um, action in the market you do eh? so people people are literally trying to buy low sell high and maybe play the injury curve or some other variable that might that might change things. No doubt. any any external factor like that has an impact and sometimes it's more huh. pronounced than other times right but there's just you know if a player gets injured or if a player's like on a heater or if a player is ice cold or if a player's team is very good or if a player's team is very bad depending on the player like those can all have have impacts i think like the idea of like day trading and stuff like that there are those those select moments in time where somebody will just explode so for example i think it was last season it was it was last playoffs there's a, a Clippers player named Terrence, Terrence Mann. Mann. I was just thinking had, about that. Exactly. Had it like an insane playoff series at a couple crazy games. His yeah. cards exploded in value um, because of that. So you'll see those like those moments um, where stuff will explode. Whereas if like, you know, if Giannis, ex- like Giannis won the championship and his stuff didn't move that much because he's already a multi-time MVP. He's mm-hmm. already like his, his, his like Hall of Fame future and all of his accolades and all of and everything it's all like baked into his current price so it definitely helped it's not like it his market went down because he won but it's not going to have the same effect uh as you know terrence mann having the series of his life in the, in yeah. the playoff. reminds me of my uh, my fantasy baseball strategy is pretty much to to pick up guys that are in their free agent year because uh, yeah I don't know what it is, but they always seem to play more games and, and keep the focus a little bit better when they're playing for the contract. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I use the same strategy. It's like if I'm deciding between two players and I'm generally indifferent, I yeah. will pick the one, you know, if there's one in a contract year, absolutely pick the one in a contract year. Interesting to say that translates down to sort of a, <laughs> a, a buy and sell strategy in this space. That's very cool. Um, yeah, so I guess you're saying there's all kinds of horizons there's all kinds of objective functions you know the audience is definitely growing uh you know i talked a little bit about like the licensing opportunities that you might have uh, experienced during the tail end of your you know nba exec days but are you are you seeing more monetization opportunities for memorabilia than ever before you know, it seems like there's more ways to monetize a hard asset now if you do acquire it. Um, you know, whether there's like a, a digital proof on a blockchain that you are the holder of that asset or fractional ownership or, you know, who knows where the metaverse takes us after this. But it just seems like there's a, a multitude of, of new ways to monetize. And I wonder if that if you're seeing that show up in pricing trends. Yeah, no, no 
numerous ways to monetize. It, in some ways, it does affect pricing trends of particular assets, but I also think it just improves accessibility and the entry point into the like into the hobby and into into you know investing or collecting mm-hmm. these like these collectibles. I mean, because for example, look having the fractionalized you know, ownership companies out there like Rally and Collectible and, and with Otis and all those companies, having them out there like, so A, they are buying assets. So they are, of course, they're, they're purchasing items from companies like us. Yep. Um, so that's great. And, you know, that definitely, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, like that adds another buyer and that, of course, will drive the price of those items up. But then at the same time, it's, it's making that item, which was a completely unattainable item, accessible to a lot of people when they IPO it and they sell shares of it. So, you know, and then that in turn can, you know, can ultimately lead to that thing increasing in value. And so, it, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it does, it does help. And to your point, absolutely, like there have never been more ways to monetize hard assets. And, you know, the, the idea of having a digital twin exists which would be on on a blockchain to your point of having a fractional ownership of the thing it's just there's a lot of a lot of really interesting um, ways to monetize these things you can vault them and and basically borrow money against the vaulted asset using that as collateral like there's a lot of is that, is that a physical is that a physical vault or a, like a, a digital it's a physical vault, vault yes yeah. so interesting can, so okay you, know, you can put a physical item in a physical vault mm-hmm. then that item is is collateral and it has it's, it has an appraised value and you could borrow against it so what kind there's of loan a to value of what, yeah, what kind of loan to value can you get on a physical item like uh, just just give me a reference point out of curiosity a lot, you can get a lot. I mean, if it's a, if it's a very valuable item, I mean, it's it's based on you know a you know an agreed upon appraisal value, right? But yeah. assuming you can agree on that, you could get a lot of a lot of money for that item. Hundred percent. Interesting. Interesting. So you know, I'm I'm always fascinated by people who work in uh, in an interesting investment space about what their portfolio construction looks like personally. Um, obviously, you know, you know the space you're in inside and out. I'm, I'm so curious. Are you heavily concentrated in this arena as well in your own investment portfolio, or do you have some traditional 60/40 stuff going on? What is what does your world look like a little bit? I mean, personally, so yeah, I, I have I have a lot of uh, of collectibles. I do collect cards, and as I as I mentioned, I love them. Um, but I also because my whole career is, is in this hobby. Yeah in this industry um i try to hedge as well so like i'm in you know like traditional markets and, and i'm in Good. more traditional assets as well because I, I don't think i can put all my eggs in in one basket even if i'm very bullish on the basket i just it's just i think it's just foolish to not diversify so for me i'm i'm like pretty diverse in in the way that that i invest but um I definitely, my own like collecting and sort of um, memorabilia investment strategies changed over the years. Like when I first got into it or got back into it a couple of years ago, I was definitely after like the penny stock home run type things. Mm. I was like, okay, let's, let's try to get stuff really cheap and hope that it like, you know, that I hit a home run. I was doing a lot of like 
you know, modern buying, so like buying modern players and, and, you know, hoping they break out. It was a lot of that kind of like speculative stuff. I was buying a lot of prospect baseball cards. So like yeah. Roman first and, you know, inevitably some of them worked out and many of them didn't as, as yeah, one yeah. they do. And now that, now that I've been in it for a little while and I'm a little bit more risk averse, just as I said, just given like how much exposure I have to it, um, I've stuck to, to things that are a little bit more boring, like, you know, things that are more boring as in, you know, th- things that aren't necessarily going to like grow explosively, but that are much, that are what I would consider to be like very safe investments. So like really, really, really like high, you know, quality, uh, vintage baseball cards, things like that, mm-hmm. like pre-war stuff, like Mickey Mantle, stuff, like stuff that's just like been around forever. That's that's very safe that's like essentially it, it's just like buying something that you know you think will be sort of a slow and steady you know safe yeah. investment and uh, the other thing i've gotten into is a is sealed product um so unopened products they call sealed wax and, and i think those are really interesting because essentially sealed product is this sort of like an, an index fund for like the things for like all the players that are in it, right? So it's like, yeah. it's just like, they, it, but it, it won't go as high or as low as any given player at any given time in the product. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, if the, the player's popularity, you know, gains steam over time, the sealed product will go with it. Fascinating, yeah, it's interesting. So with your new strategy, I mean, Mickey Mantle's definitely not gonna get injured next year. I think we can be sure of that. We're very um, sure he won't say anything stupid. He said all the stupid things he can say. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's not gonna. Tw- he's not tweeting anything. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, like, what is the year-over-year appreciation of, like, let's just say those are like the blue chips, right? So you know, we have an understanding, generally speaking, of you know the stock market. If you don't look for 20 years, it'll go up by six, seven percent per year. What what would Mickey Mantle do across a 20-year horizon, annualized? It's, it's really hard to say because the market has, has changed so much. I mean, the last 10 years, you know, the, like the collectibles market has, has, you know, way outpaced the S&P 500. So it's been mm-hmm. the return for blue chip assets like that have been extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I don't even know what I would, what I would predict because I like the market is just, it like, it will have ebbs and flows in that, in that time. And yeah. You know, and for certain assets, I mean, if you look at like a T two hundred six Honus Wagner, like the blue chip of blue chip assets, yeah. like I, I could be mis- misquoting this or misstating this, but I'm almost sure I'm right. But I believe that that card has like, except for perhaps like during like, the depths of the recession, like it hasn't like has never been sold at a loss. Like that card, mm. I, every time it changes hands, it appreciates. Mm-hmm. Like no matter how long or short the time window is between between sales of it so there are just certain things that are that to me just sort of like transcend everything and, and there's only a couple of those those blue chip assets but if you're lucky enough to get your mitts on one uh, they tend to be uh, they tend to be good investments huh there's only a couple I would have assumed that you could do that with almost any you know Jordan Gretzky mantle yeah like, yeah of course and that's what I mean by a couple not like two got it. Like okay. there's, a, there's a handful yeah and Jordan like he has the, like I mean there's a lot of valuable Jordan cards but you know like the rookie card for him is the 86 Fleer 
you know, the Gretzky yeah. OBG, like that is his rookie card. Like that, that's the one for, you know, for Wagner. And it's, it's obviously the T206, which is all kinds of lore around it. Mantle, it's 52 tops. Like there's certain cards that are, that are really, really special. Interesting. Um, and there's not a ton of different ones. There are, there are several. It's just not, you know, not yeah. infinite. Well, let me let me show my cards for a minute. I think my best one that I've got. I mean, I I was a baseball card collector, so I've got the Upper Deck 1991 series, and I don't know how well you know that series, but that was the year that Michael Jordan was on the White Sox. Anything? Anything? Twenty bucks? Michael Jordan baseball cards, on the whole, I mean, not as much as you think they are. I, I okay. think a lot of it, like especially in that era, things from like the eighties. 90s are are very very grade dependent but oftentimes they are they were they were mass produced in such volume that mm. uh, the quantity alone makes makes it difficult to you know to achieve crazy value with some exceptions so I'm, I'm probably gonna have to say you can't retire so you might have to <laughs> for a bit <laughs> All right, well, that plans out the window then. So has that has that trend continued? Like, are, are, are newly printed sets also, is the quantity still going up, or has that tapered off? Um, I mean, they've done a good job. So that, you know, what happened in the 80s and 90s, which was called, like, sort of the junk wax era, um, mm. was, you know, just massive. There's a couple of things, right? It was massive overproduction by the manufacturers, and then there was also the fact that there were a lot of different manufacturers, leagues, who licensed the right to print cards of their players and their mm-hmm. IP, essentially just licensed their, that right to a ton of different manufacturers. So you had a lot of different companies printing and all of them are printing a lot. And that just creates a gigantic glut of supply in the market, which like, you know, economics 101 doesn't do great things for the value. Um, yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh, it was you know, and I think, look, it was probably in part. I'm guessing because people, you know, like my father's age, grew up with those scarce, you know, Mickey Mantle cards, and they treated them like garbage. They put them in the spokes of their bike, and then their mothers or fathers threw them out, you know, and they right. left home, and then they, you know, would like sick over the prices that they that they saw these things were going for. I mean. And they couldn't, you know, and then they're like, I'm not going to let that happen to my child. And so, like, you know, my dad bought me a complete set every of tops every year that I was alive, that I lived in his house. And collectively, they're, you know, they're probably not. I thought that I was going to retire off those sets <laughs> for a long time. And unfortunately, come to terms with the fact that I won't. Um, but I put for modern products, the, the manufacturers have done a, a really nice job. And first of all, there's only there's only really two of them right now, right? There's Panini, there's others, but like for the, like the companies that actually have the licenses of the really like big leagues, yeah. there's really two and, and they each have the license of different things. So like baseball is with tops and basketball and football are with Panini and they have introduced sort of manufacturing scarcity through parallels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the base cards, sure. There's, you know, there's, there's a, a fair number of base cards that exist but Mm -hmm. you have you know certain parallels that have particular you know print runs to them and and they're printed on the card so it's like you know this thing's out of 50 or this thing's out of 10 or this thing's out of five 
And that's a way to control the population of these things. And that's a way to, to through manufacturing, to actually maintain scarcity and avoid that type of like overabundance and maintain value. How far are they taking that? Because I mean, with an NFT, for example, you can do a one of one. Are you seeing any one of one physical runs? Oh yeah, one of ones, absolutely. There's one of one cards in almost every set. You know, there's okay. they're called super fractors in, in certain sets. Like there, there's plenty of um, one of ones out there of different types, and they're they're the grail of, of basically every set is you know is is a one of one. Um, so yes, they they are there are one of one physical cards, and they're amazing. Very cool. Did not know. Learned something new. Um, well, Sam, I uh, I very much appreciate you taking time. I will. Uh, I'll definitely be sending you uh, a link to this broadcast and you can let me know if um, you want to take anything out. But this was super useful and, and appreciate you joining uh, joining me here today. And uh, lastly, just uh, have you had a chance at all to interact with Steve Cohen? No, I actually uh, I haven't had a chance to interact with Steve Cohen. I've interacted with Steve Cohen like once in my life in when I was in college, um, he was in the same fraternity that I was in many years apart. Um, there's zero percent chance he remembers the interaction. It was very brief, but uh, that was my one Steve Cohen interaction. But no, unfortunately, I haven't I haven't interacted with him yet. But um, you, you, my new favorite, my new favorite Twitter character, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely entertaining. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Sam, thanks again. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate you having me. Take care.